The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We are and have been for many, many months in a, a, a sermon series journeying through the book of Hebrews. Uh, and we're at the last a handful of verses in the 11th chapter. This, this chapter is often referred to as the Hall of Faith. And in the previous several weeks, as we've been kind of working through this, this chapter, we've been looking at different uh, men and women from the Old Testament and, and their, their example of faith. We've been kind of calling it case studies in faith, if you will. And today we're going to wrap up the last few verses, beginning in verse uh, 32 through the end of the chapter. So, if you're there, let me, let me read the text, and then we'll open up with a word of prayer. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So as the author kind of gets to a point in his argument where he just sort of sums up the rest of the Old Testament... Time would, would prevent me, he says, from, from unpacking all these incredible faith stories in the Old Testament. So he sort of just does this overview summary of the rest of the Old Testament in these few verses. And what he does is he kind of tells us a couple of key things, really important things that sort of are true of the entire life of faith. I want to give you the outline of the sermon today up front so you can kind of have that in mind as we journey through these verses. And so here's what I want you to see very beginning, the outline of this sermon. The author is saying, the faithful live by faith in times of triumph. He is saying that the faithful live by faith in times of tragedy. And he's saying that the faithful live by faith all times, at all times, trusting. And I'll even add trusting in the perfect provision of God. So that, as I unpack our text today, we're going to see the movement of the passage will take us through these three points. This is the message, if you will, in a bottle. And what you'll hear me say many times as I teach through this passage today is I'll summarize our text by saying the faithful live by faith in times of triumph and tragedy, at all times trusting. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for the privilege you give us each and every week of gathering in this place, God, as we, and as our nation celebrates her 243rd birthday uh, this Tuesday, God, we're grateful to live in a country where we have the freedom 
to gather in this place, to proclaim your name, to, to read of your word, to worship you in open and active ways. God, thank you for that, that great privilege, that exception to human history that has been the American experiment. Thank you that we can worship today. God, I pray that we would not waste this moment. This is such an honor and such a privilege for us to gather and sit under the authority of your word today, to to gaze upon the examples of faith in these men and women in the Old Testament, but God, ultimately to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Make yourself known to us today. Holy Spirit, would you move in us? Soften our hearts, open our eyes, God. Would you draw us to yourself? Would you convict us of sin? And would you enable us and embolden us to confess our sins and and to walk repentance back towards you? We invite you to meet us in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, One of my very favorite TV shows, which probably is not a surprise to any of you, is Alone. Have any, any of you here watched the TV show Alone? Yeah, it is awesome. It's on the History Channel. It is this, it's a reality show. I normally don't like reality TV, but this is like real reality. And they take these 10 survivalist experts from all over the world, mostly North America, but really all over the world, and they send them usually into like Arctic climates, boreal forests in northern Canada, and these survivalists are dropped off utterly alone by themselves in the middle of the wilderness. They have some cameras where they film themselves, and they have to survive. And they are competing against the nine other contestants and they have no idea when the other contestants, you know, either starve out or tap out and they're just trying to last the longest. The winner wins a bunch of money. And they, these people film themselves and it's, it's incredible. You know, I watch the show. I'm a sort of an outdoorsy kind of person and I, and I fool myself into thinking I could do it. Oh, I could do that. I could do that. And I'm like, you know, but I really like cheeseburgers. And I really like cuddling with my wife. So I'd make it like a week and then I would totally give up. But I love watching the show. And what's interesting about the show is oftentimes it attracts the sorts of people that are very earthy, you know, just very in touch with mother nature kind of people. And, you know, and they always have, they're always are really bold in the first week or two of the show. And, and, and it happens very, very often where like day three or day two or day five of their experience in the wilderness, they'll, they'll with their bow and arrow hunt down a squirrel or a grouse, or they'll catch a rabbit. And, and they usually have this weird sort of pagan thing that they do. They thank Mother Earth for the animal, their Mother Earth nature god. And I roll my eyes at the television. I call them pagans under my breath, but whatever. They have this moment where they're very thankful for their deity to, for, for providing this food. And then as the episode unfolds, and as the season unfolds, pretty soon they're not catching grouse <laughs> or squirrels, or moose, or deer, and they're freezing, and they're starving, and they're weeping into the camera because they miss their family, at which point I shout to the television, where is your Mother Earth nature pagan god now? <laughs> um, which is not very kind, or Jesus-like, but, <laughs> you know, I, and I judge, I judge. However, however, If you and I are brutally honest with ourselves when it comes to how we view God, the Christian God of the Bible, I don't know if we're all that different. Maybe you're more mature than me, but the truth is Christians also have a tendency to express faithfulness of God in times of triumph. Oh God, you are so good. You've delivered this great gift in my life and you are so good. But if you're honest, or at least if I'm honest, we struggle sometimes to understand what faith looks like in times of tragedy. 
and in times of failure or times of poverty or loneliness. So maybe I shouldn't be quite so arrogant in shouting at the people on the television. You see, there are moments and seasons in the Christian life that are characterized by triumph. My hope is that each one of you who walks with Jesus has testimony of the, of the triumphant, victorious power of Jesus in your life. My hope is you have many stories to tell about the triumphant power of the gospel in your life. Moments of blessing and prosperity, uh, of pleasure, of, of prevailing in the midst of trial. The uh, moments of victory to the glory of God. Moments where God has delivered you from, from sin or from addiction or he's opened opportunity to share Christ with an unbelieving friend. God answers a prayer for a lost loved one to come to faith and, and the one who once rejected God, you see miraculously by the spirit of God, their heart is softened, their eyes open and they confess Christ as Lord. Glory be to God. Glory be to God in those moments of triumph. Amen? And then there's moments and seasons in the Christian life that we all can attest to that are characterized by tragedy. Moments of burden and poverty. Moments where we're called to painfully persevere in the midst of affliction. Defeat. Our prayers for healing aren't answered the way we hoped they would be. The one for whom we begged physical healing loses the battle. The one for whom we begged deliverance remains imprisoned. The one for whom we beg for salvation continues to wander and turn their back on Jesus. Doors are closed. The coworker rejects the gospel. We lose our jobs. Bankruptcy approaches. It's not that faith worked in those seasons of triumph and somehow faith failed to work in those seasons of tragedy. As we've mentioned earlier on in this chapter, faith isn't some force and we aren't some spiritual superhero who wields the power of force to do amazing things. We've learned that faith is centered on God. I was in Israel last week and we were on top of Mount Carmel and we were, we were, we were marveling at this place where the prophet Elijah called down the fire of God and burnt up this offering in the presence of these 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah. And we realized, you know, it wasn't that Elijah was a special guy is what Elijah understood was the power of God. He had a God-centered faith. And just because we suffer does not mean that we don't walk in faith. Just because we're in seasons of tragedy does not mean that faith is not working. You see, faith is an active, ongoing trust in the God of the Bible. It's lived out day by day in faithfulness, in loyalty and allegiance to King Jesus, trusting him whether in seasons of triumph or in seasons of tragedy. Faith is for both. The case studies of faith that we've been looking at here in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, we've seen great examples of this active and loyal faithfulness, this God orientation of the life of these Old Testament saints. And they went through tragedy and they also went through triumph. The big idea is that the faithful live by faith, both in times of tragedy and triumph, at all times trusting in the perfect provision of God. Now, as we read the book of Hebrews, we need to remember who this book was written to. This was written to a, a, a group of believers who were experiencing crushing persecution. We have to remind ourselves of what the situation was when this letter was originally read to its, intended, to its original intended audience. These were men and women who were, who were Christians from Jewish descent 
And they were, they were trying to worship Jesus in a world that was actively rising in their hatred of Jesus. Nero, the emperor of Rome, was rising in his crushing persecution and slaughter of Christians. Very likely, these men and women who initially received this letter, very likely they had family members who shunned them and, and excommunicated them from family because of their faith in Jesus. And very likely, this group of beleaguered believers had seen their own loved ones who had once accepted Christ as Lord, who had then, in apostasy, turned their back on Jesus and left the church. They were a grieving, beleaguered, tired group of Christians ready to give up, and the threat of persecution was at the front door. How important for those men and women to hear that the faithful live by faith in times of triumph, but also in times of tragedy. Amen? They were tempted to give up because of their pain, because of their persecution, because of the backbreaking burdens that they faced. They, they, were, they were tempted to say to Jesus, like many have over the course of human history, they were tempted to say to Jesus and others, man, man I, gave, I gave Jesus a try. I, I gave it a shot, man. I was a part of the church for, a, for quite a while. I worshiped, I served in the church, I had Christian friends. But the reality is it was just painful. I met with brutal difficulty, defeat, ugly people. The faith in Jesus thing just didn't work for me, so I'm turning away from him now, and I'm going to go back to what's comfortable. I'm going to go back to my former life. I think we all know people who've said the same thing in the 21st century as they did in the 1st century. And so here what the author of Hebrews is doing, he's in the chapter, the 11th chapter, is he's offering them a biblical perspective He's helping them to recognize that maybe they have the understanding of faith a bit wrong, and he's giving them an example, multiple examples of case studies and faith of these saints in the Bible. And the first thing he says, if you want to write this down, this is the first point, is the faithful live by faith in times of triumph. Absolutely. The faithful live by faith in times of triumph. We look back at verses 32 through the first part of, of verse 35, and we see that the author here mentions these six names. In verse 32, he says, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. Five of those six are judges. Samuel is sort of a prophet judge. David was a king. You can read of their lives in the book of Judges in First and Second Samuel. I, 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 just, I just listened to the whole book of Judges again this weekend just to remind myself of the story of, of the judges. It, and, and the judges in the, in the Old Testament weren't like the judges today. They weren't courtroom judges. These were more like, like appointed men from the tribes of Israel who, who were meant to sort of deliver Israel, Israel from their enemies. These judges were more like military leaders, less like judges who deal with issues of the law. And if you read the book of Judges, in which most of these names are contained, the author of the book of Judges, on four separate occasions, tells us that in those days there was no king in Israel... Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The backdrop of the book of Judges is absolute godless debauchery and depravity. And in the midst of a godless nation, of a godless culture, of a godless society, they are these examples of faithful men who were not perfect men, but they're mentioned here as faithful men in the midst of a broken culture. Can you think of a society or a culture that is increasing in its godlessness with each and every day? I sure can. Gideon, let me remind you of, of who these men were. 
Many of you know these stories. Let me remind you. Gideon was a judge of Israel. And his most famous moment comes where he's having this conversation with God. The Midianites were this powerful, powerful army. Gideon wants to lead the armies of Israel up against the armies of Midian. And, and he's got 32,000 troops. And, and, and the, the sort of conversation he has with God is that, you know, Gideon, if you're successful with your 32,000 troops over the Midianites, um, you might think that that power rests with you and not with me. So let's reduce your force. 32,000 to 10,000 to 300 troops. And in obedience to God's word, Gideon leads these few hundred men up against this powerful army of the Midianites, armed with trumpets and pitchers that hid their torches. Gideon and his men triumphed over the Midianites against all odds. Triumphant faith. Barak, he was this other judge of Israel. God gave him his word through the, through, through Deborah. Barak led 10,000 troops from just two tribes of Israel up against the seemingly uh, impenetrable, powerful force of Caesarea. They had 900 chariots of iron, untold soldiers, and against all odds, Barak and his men triumphed over the Caesareans against all odds. No doubt you know the story of Samson, this Nazarite. Samson was a guy, when you read his story in the book of Judges, you're like, really? Like this guy? is <laughs> a man of faith? Like he's mentioned in the hall of faith? I mean, he was this arrogant, impulsive, immoral sex addict. <laughs> he was. And yet the author of Hebrews here focuses on him as a case study in faith. Now, Samson, as we know, was given great strength, great privilege, great gifting by God to, to lead the people of Israel uh, against the, the oppression of their arch enemy, the Philistines. But instead of utilizing his God-given gifts for God-glorifying work, Samson indulged the flesh. But once his eyes were gouged out and he was at the end of his life, being physically blinded, he finally regained some spiritual sight and God-given strength. And in one of the greatest acts of faith and strength ever, he avenged himself and the nation and overthrew the Philistines. Blind Samson triumphed over the Philistines against all odds. Jephthah, another judge of Israel, foolishly made a vow to sacrifice his only child, his daughter, a weird, misguided, perverted vow to God if he was given victory. However, the author of Hebrews just focuses on the faith of Jephthah. He was sort of this kind of like illegitimate son slash Robin Hood figure for Israel. And though his life had some weird twists and turns, he, he, he's mentioned as one with triumphant faith. And perhaps the least surprising name in the whole entire chapter of, uh, 11th chapter of Hebrews is the name David. We've kind of been waiting for this name to show up. He was a man after God's own heart. This amazing, powerful king. But think about how we are introduced to David back in, in 1 Samuel. He was a ruddy-faced shepherd boy. His dad didn't even think he was worthy enough to bring to Samuel as someone who could be potential king. He was just left out in the fields. And he comes forward, this ruddy-faced shepherd boy, and Samuel anoints him king. And then we have this scene where the armies of Israel are shaken in their armor, terrified of this giant Goliath, this champion of the Philistines. And you know the story. It's the greatest story ever told. We still use the phrase David and Goliath. I love, I was just reading again this morning through what, what David says to Goliath as he goes out there with his five stones and his sling against this giant. He says, you come at me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. Can you see this little kid in this valley? 
four foot nothing, eight foot something, standing before this guy. Can you imagine with all the trembling armies of Israel watching in disbelief? Can you imagine that scene? On this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down, cut off your head. Dude, I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. You guys want to go for a fight right now? Don't you just feel like fighting? Like, I want to go fight. Let's do it. A small shepherd boy, David, armed with a sling and a stone and a towering faith, triumphed over the Goliath and over the Philistines against all odds. And lastly, we read the name of Samuel who was this prophet and judge of Israel. Really a very faithful man. A gift to his mother after years of barrenness. She dedicates Samuel to the Lord. He serves in the Lord's tabernacle his whole life, speaking boldly the word of God, standing before King Saul and speaking the the word boldly. Samuel was a faithful man who God used in triumphant ways throughout the course of his life and ministry. So this is a story of triumph here. Triumphant faith. One author says, from Gideon to David, each man battled overwhelming odds. Gideon with his 300 against the innumerable host. David, young David against this giant with his sling and a few stones. Each stood alone against the world. And most significantly, perhaps, is that each one of these heroes had a flawed faith. What? Consider these men I just mentioned. Barak. He wasn't even courageous enough to go into battle without Deborah. Gideon, he kept asking God's for signs. God, I need a sign, I need a sign. As an act of a lack of faith. Samson, his sexual infidelities and his impulsive acts really marked his entire life. Jephthah vowed to sacrifice his own daughter. Samson, though faithful, or rather Samuel, though faithful, he allowed his corrupt sons to become judges of Israel in a very destructive act of nepotism. And as we know about David, he committed an act of adultery with Bathsheba, and then he murdered her husband to cover up his sin. Not perfect men. The point here is not to elevate these men. It's to elevate the God in whom they trusted. Thomas Schreiner says it's not the sins or faults of these men that are remembered. The author doesn't mention the faults of any of them. But their faith and trust in God, showing that perseverance in faith for the author is not the same thing as perfection. Glad to know that. One may sin dramatically and still persevere in faith. Doesn't that give you hope? Faith trusts in what cannot be seen. And such trust produces real world results. The author then goes on to mention, here's what faith does. Here's the real world way in which faith manifests. And he goes through these sort of nine ways in which faith manifests here in the next few verses. Verses 33, halfway through the verse uh, 35. He talks about these broad ways in which faith empowers, uh, it conquers kingdoms, it enforces justice, obtains promises. He's not just referring to those six men mentioned previously. He's talking about the whole host of people mentioned in this chapter. He says that the faith provides deliverance. He mentions three forms of deliverance at the end of chapter, or verse 33 and into, uh, into verse 34. He says that, 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 
The faith stops the mouth of lions. It quenches the power of fire, helps people escape the edge of the sword. Think of those great stories in the Old Testament of the mouths of lions being stopped. Whether it's Samson tearing a lion in two with his bare hands, David clubbing lions as they're trying to take his flock, or that awesome picture, not resorting to physical force, but to prayer and trust and faith. Daniel in the lion's den delivered by God. Triumphant faith. Quench the power of fire. We see Rakshak and Benny there in the furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's a fourth person in there. They don't even have the smell of smoke on their clothes. Triumphant faith. David and Elijah and Elisha and countless others escape the sword. We're seeing these pictures of deliverance, of triumphant faith. The, the last three displays there at the end of verse 34 and the beginning of verse 35. These displays of power. They were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. The message here is that God can and does deliver the faithful. And if I'm honest in my life and ministry after seeing lots of hard things, it's so good for me to be reminded of this today. As I studied this passage this week, I was so glad to be reminded that our God is a victorious God. That he can and he does deliver the faithful. The scriptures are filled with countless examples of God's triumphant power. The history of the church is filled with countless examples of triumph. Our God is a delivering God. His deliverance is always by faith in him and his word. Remember, the center of faith is God. Now I imagine that beleaguered bunch of believers just having these words read over them written by a man who had invested in their church, I imagine how life-giving these words were, how desperately they needed this message. Maybe you need this message today too. As this reality pressed into this church of ongoing persecution and difficulty, they needed to be reminded of a faith that pleases God, of a faith that empowers God's people. And so the message to us is that the faithful, the faithful are to live by faith in times of triumph and tragedy, at all times trusting. The faithful live by faith in times of triumph, but the parallel truth is there also, isn't it? God has not promised anybody wholesale deliverance in this life. God has not promised you or me or anyone who's ever come to him in faith that he will at all times deliver us from every situation. We won't always prevail. Sometimes we're simply called in the face of persecution to persevere. It's not always blessings. Sometimes God shapes us through the burdens. It's not always triumph. The faithful, second, secondly, live by faith in times of tragedy. The faithful, secondly here, live by faith in times of tragedy. And here in the middle of verse 35, there's this dramatic shift in the tone and the topic here of the author. He, he goes to talk about the power to persevere in the midst of persecution. Some were tortured, he begins, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. And then he goes on to, to unveil this long list of sufferings and tragedies that befall the faithful. He goes from talking about triumphs of faith to tragedies in faith. 
And he's really beginning to instruct his audience, them then and us today, about what does faithful perseverance look like? Because many times in the life of the Christian, we're called to faithful perseverance in times of tragedy. He begins here at the middle part of verse 35 by talking about perseverance in the midst of persecution. He says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may raise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking or flogging or even chains and imprisonment. Now, most scholars, when they read what the author here writes in, in that little section, they, they believe he's referring to the Maccabean persecution that took place among the Jews in the second century B.C. The Maccabees was this Jewish priestly family that, that organized a successful rebellion against Antiochus around 160-167 B.C. They, they restored a temple that had been defiled in Jerusalem, but but they, they suffered mightily as a result. That word that's torture here in the middle of verse 35, it's in reference to this word tympanum. And a tympanum was a torture device. It was a large drum or wheel. And the Maccabean victims in the second century BC, they were tortured upon this wheel. The book of Second Maccabees talks about there was this priest named Eleazar. He was a 91-year-old priest. He refused to eat pig meat. And because he refused to eat pig meat, they put him on this vice and they stretched him. They even dismembered people. There's, an, there's a story about how these seven sons or these seven brothers also refused to eat the meat or the flesh of pigs. And they were also tortured on this device. The idea here from the author, he's saying to his audience that faithful people, in the midst of faithful living, sometimes suffer crushing persecution. God is not asleep at the wheel. It's not that faith has ceased to work. It's just that faith looks differently in times of tragedy. He says that some saints remain faithful to the point of death. Look at verse 37. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. The idea here is that faithful people in the midst of faithful living suffer and die. The blood of the martyrs is a seed of the church. I've read recently that there's as many as 70 to 90,000 people killed every year on the world today for their faith in Jesus Christ. Has God fallen asleep at the wheel? No. Then we got this amazing testimony given to those that, that have to live in depravity. Some saints remained faithful amidst deprivation. They, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Again, the idea here is that the faithful people in the midst of faithful living can suffer deprivation and isolation. It's hard to hear that, isn't it? I'm mindful that we're celebrating 247 years of American independence and freedom uh, on Tuesday. And I was having a conversation with a handful of you at the park on, on Sunday at our picnic, and we were just talking about how the American experiment is an exception to the rule. The religious freedoms we've had enjoyed, the religious freedoms we get to enjoy even right here today, the protections we have as believers, is not the norm. What we've experienced is an incredible rarity in human history. 
And I think we should fight for that. We should fight to preserve those rights. I'm all for being very conscientious as a citizen to preserve these incredible rights that we have. And I was doing research this week about the amount of missionaries that are sent out every year from America. It's an amazing thing what's happened on our soil. And yet I just journeyed through Jerusalem last week. And gosh, I was reminded of all the persecution that has happened over the course of human history against the people of God. One of the places we went last week is we went to Caesarea Philippi which is the city in northern Israel, north of the Sea of Galilee. And it was a place that was filled with idol worship. There's a temple there for Baal and for Pan, this half goat, half man Greek god. There was a temple there to Zeus and these other goat temples. And and there was this huge cave and, and, and pagans would go there in the time of Jesus and they would sacrifice children in this cave. It was the darkest place on the earth. It was actually called the Gate to Hades. It was considered the gate to hell in Jerusalem or in Israel, north of the Sea of Galilee. And a very famous encounter happened there with, with Jesus and Peter. Do you remember the name Caesarea Philippi in the Gospels? Jesus took his disciples up there. Why would he take his disciples to the darkest place on earth? Because that's where he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ. Do you remember Jesus' words back to Peter? And he's not talking about Peter here. He's talking about himself. He's saying that the church will be built upon this rock, cornerstone Christ. And upon this rock, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said that as he stood at the gates of hell. And he said it to his disciples then, and he says it to his disciples today. And so here's the temptation we have when we see legislation being passed and persecution coming to America. We should fight against it. As Christians, I think we should be civically involved. But when we see it coming, and I hear my, my brothers and sisters in Christ saying the church is under attack. Friends, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Christ. Amen? Now our comfort is under attack. That's true. And we're beginning to feel a little, the, the heat from the, the flames is beginning to fall on us a little bit. And it's hard and it's terrifying. Be prepared to finish your Christian life behind bars. In this life, ours is a faith in times of triumph, but also times of tragedy. God is not asleep at the wheel when the church is persecuted. In fact, He works powerfully in the midst of some of the darkest moments in human history. In fact, what He says in our text in verse 35 is, They will rise again to a better life. In the midst of these stories of of, of tragedy, he uses that phrase at the end of verse 35, they will rise again to a better life. In speaking of these Old Testament saints who were persecuted and killed for their faith, those saints who died in persecution, he says, are going to be resurrected to a better life. And unlike what happened with those women who received back their sons, which was a resurrection back to life on this earth, those who live by faith, those men and women mentioned in Hebrews 11, will be resurrected to an everlasting life in the world to come. This is the better life that they will rise into. There is an end to the tragedy. I hiked, I hiked uh, Wagner Butte yesterday from the, from the Split Rock Trail. You start at a high elevation, and you're looking across these different ridge lines, McDonald Peak and some other ridge lines, and then you see Wagner Butte off in the distance, and you're standing five miles away, and you're looking at Wagner Butte, which is the destination. And it's exciting because you see it. You're like, oh, I'm going there, man. I'm going to stand on top of that mountain. And then you begin to hike and you go down and then you climb up and you go down and you climb up. And there's times when you're down in the bottom of these little valleys, you can't see Wagner Butte, but you know it's there. That's still the destination. 
That's how the journey ends. The same is true with King Jesus. He wins. The kingdom is consummated in its fullness. This is the great hope that keeps us going in those valleys of persecution and tragedy. The invitation by the author for you and for me is to live by faith in times of triumph and tragedy, trusting in the perfect provision of God. Finally, we see the faithful live by faith at all times trusting. Look at verses 39 and 40. All these, though commended through their faith, all these Old Testament saints, all 16 people mentioned in chapter 11, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Now that's a confusing, that's a confusing translation. Let me read to you two other translations of verses 39 and 40 that this might offer a little clarity before we unpack these verses. Here's how the NIV translates these two verses. These were all commended for their faith, all these people in the Old Testament. Yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us that only together with us they would be made perfect. Here's the New Living. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. What does this mean? That apart from us, that only together with us, that without us, they were not going to receive perfection, these Old Testament saints. What does the author mean? Well, here's how the ESV Study Bible puts it. The saints of the Old Testament, along with those of this era, will partake together in the same end times perfection, sinless selves in deathless resurrection bodies. All the saints, past and present, finish on the Mount of God. The perfect provision of God will be fully realized, which means now that you and me, in times of triumph and tragedy, we can trust God. No matter how high and how beautiful the mountaintop triumphs are, and no matter how low and how brutal the valley tragedies are, we can trust him. Because we know how salvation history ends. It ends in victory for the people of God as we reign alongside Christ. Can I offer a confession? Oftentimes in my life, when people ask me, Hey, Paul, how are you doing? How's your life? How are you doing spiritually? How's your spiritual life going? And I take a step back and I do some reflection. Here's my temptation. I tend to survey the landscape of my life and the circumstances of my life. And if upon survey of my current conditions, if there are more triumphs in my life than tragedies, I open my eyes and I say, I'm doing so good. God is good. I'm doing great. I'm in a good spot. If someone asks me that question, and if when I close my eyes, there are more tragedies and valleys in my life than mountaintops and triumphs, I tend to open my eyes and say, I'm in a tough spot. I'm struggling. My faith is struggling right now. And again, that's normal, I suppose. I'm not saying that's wrong, but that's just the truth. I, I, wish, I wish my temptation would be to look less on the mountaintops and valleys of my environment and look more on the truth of who God is and say, you know what? Yeah, I'm going through some hard things right now, but my hope is anchored in him. And I trust him. And I know who wins. And that's why I can get out of bed with joy in my heart today. 
The promise of God in Christ is unchanging. It's that, it's that distant goal that we get to look at no matter where we find ourselves on the journey. The faithful live by faith in times of triumph, in times of tragedy, at all times trusting the perfect provision of God. And I don't want to... You know, anytime you give a, t- a teaching on the, like this when you're talking about tough things, I, I, can, I can know that, you know, geez we're in a group, a mixed group of people. And there's just no doubt that there's lots of you that are suffering today or going through a hard time or you're in, you're experiencing one of the, the tragedies or the persecutions or the moments of pain that, that this life often affords. And I was talking to Pastor Jeremy this morning about this. And, you know, last Sunday, uh, we were invited to pray over a brother in the Lord who, who had a, a health scare and had to have a, a procedure to see what the condition of his health was. And, and it was really encouraging to hear my brother talking about his faith in Christ, regardless. Had a bigger faith than me. And, and then we, we anointed this brother in oil and we prayed over him. Now, James, in a, as an elder of the church, that's one of the things you do. We anoint in oil and we pray. And we're called to do that as elders. And, and I often think of James chapter 5, where the author, uh, where James talks about we anoint. Uh, if any of you is suffering, uh, you come to the elders, they're anoint you in oil, we'll pray for healing, the, the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It's a really, and we do, we pray, we boldly pray for triumph. We boldly pray for, for healing. And then Jeremy reminds me often that anointing has a second purpose also. Anointing is, is something you do as an act of consecration. So when a brother or sister who is suffering in a season of tragedy comes and is asking for healing or deliverance, we boldly anoint in oil and pray for healing or deliverance. We also recognize in that moment we are, we are, we are anointing, we are consecrating this person for holy use. In the Old Testament, they would consecrate the vassals for use in the temple, to, to, to use them for holy means. So when I anoint a sick brother or a hurting brother or sister or someone in the midst of tragedy, we're consecrating them for holy use. And it just may be that God is more glorified in you when you persevere in suffering for him. And that's a hard reality sometimes. And I don't say that with a calloused heart or indifference to what you may be going through or to the tragedies in your life. But to be consecrated for holy use is to say, God... In triumph or tragedy, I live by faith, and I'm yours, and I trust you. Use me for your glory. Live by faith in times of triumph or tragedy, trusting in the perfect provision of God. This morning is a communion Sunday for us, isn't it? We're going to come to the table here in a few minutes, and I'll invite the band up when I pray. So, Teresa, hold on. When I pray, you'll come up. I should have told you before service. Um... We come to the table this morning and we consider the elements. And today we have this lens of triumph and tragedy. And we take, when we take these elements up in our hand, we have both in view. In a few moments, you're going to take a cup in your hands and you're going to take some bread in your hands. And that bread, as brutal as it sounds, represents the broken body of Jesus. That cup, when you take it in your hands, it represents the, the spilled blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's hardly anything more tragic than an innocent sufferer. There's only ever been one truly innocent sufferer. There's hardly anything more tragic than an entirely innocent man condemned to death. Not just any death, but the most excruciating death imaginable. The tragedy of the crucifixion, however, is eclipsed by the triumph of King Jesus. 
As tragic as the cross was, as tragic as the sight of an utterly innocent man suffering and dying is, as tragic as an innocent man's broken body and shed blood is, the triumph of the cross is the centerpiece of our faith. That's insane to me. That a medieval Roman torturing device has become the symbol of hope for billions. Only God could do that. The cross represents the justifying work of Christ. That tragedy upon the cross in the first century outside the gates of Jerusalem, it was accomplishing something. The wrath of God was being poured out on Jesus as he willingly took the cup of suffering for a reason. The suffering of Christ was accomplishing something. His broken body and his shed blood was for a purpose. He wasn't needlessly broken. His blood wasn't needlessly spilled. The prophet Isaiah says it better than I ever could. 700 years before Jesus showed up on the scene, here's what the prophet Isaiah said about the cross and about Jesus. He said, surely he, Jesus, took up our pain. He bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him by his wounds, we are healed like all sheep. We have gone astray, each of us. We have turned our own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Hallelujah. The burden that befell Jesus brought us blessing. His poverty brought us prosperity. His tragedy brought us triumph. His pain allows us to prevail. His perfect obedience in the midst of tragedy. His perfect righteousness under the most brutal of experiences is now the substance of our salvation. Ultimately, the cross has become the symbol not of tragedy but of triumph. Death doesn't win. Sin doesn't win. Jesus triumphs. And those who are found in him will share in that triumph. Does this life have tragedy? Yes, it does. Will you and I experience suffering? Yep, we will. Is pain and persecution and tragedy a part of life on this side of glory? Yeah, it is. But it's not how the story ends. Walking through the Holy Land, I was reminded of the faithfulness of God, regardless of the foolishness of man. History is heading somewhere. King Jesus is alive. And as our author has reminded us throughout this book, over and over, Jesus is now enthroned in heaven where he's mediating a better covenant, where he's interceding on our behalf, preparing a place for us, planning his history-ending, glorious and triumphant return and today, as we come to the table, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor to the soul. And I'll finish with the words that the author is going to speak in next week's teaching, the first two verses of chapter 12. Here's his direct follow-up to everything we just learned. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every, every weight Let's let, let us lay aside every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hallelujah. Pray with me. Oh, Father, as we prepare our hearts and minds to come to the table this morning, 
God, I pray that none of us would eat this bread or drink of this cup in an unworthy manner. God, I pray that none of us would do so and, and thus sin against the body and blood of the Lord. God, I give us this time, these moments right now to examine our hearts, to examine ourselves before we come to the table, that we may not do so in an unworthy way. God, I, I am so grateful, I am so grateful to know that you are a God of both the triumphs and the tragedies. And there's no greater example of that than the cross. Jesus, upon the cross, you cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lema shabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And our finite human minds would just give up in that moment. We would just say, tragedy has won, but it, it didn't. Jesus, you conquered sin, you conquered death, you're alive today, you've ascended to heaven, you're preparing a place for us, you're interceding for us, and you've given us this simple ordinance today to come to the table as men and women who've been born again into the family of God. You've given us this ordinance to come to the table to take the bread which represents your broken body and take the cup which represents your, your shed blood as the family of God. You've called us to do so as an act of faith, as an act of worship. God, I pray for those men and women here that, who've been taking communion for 30 years. God, I pray that this would just be another beautiful episode in a life of worship as they come to the table, a reminder of your goodness. And God, of course, this morning, I'm very mindful of those in our midst who maybe have never trusted you with their lives. God, I'm mindful of those men and women here today who've, who've never come to a place of full surrender where they've looked to the cross and they've, they've said to you in an act of, of confession and an act of prayer, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe, you, I believe you lived a sinless life and I believe you went to the cross in my place and you satisfied the justice of God when you died in my place on the cross. Jesus, I, I believe you are the son of the living God and that you've risen to life. You've defeated sin and death and you're alive today. And I'm confessing with my mouth, Jesus, that you are Lord. And I'm believing in my heart, Jesus, that you have been raised from the dead. God, I pray that whoever comes to the table this morning would come, would come as an act of faith, as a child of God, be glorified in us and through us in times of tragedy or triumph. In Jesus' name we pray.